Hi, this is Pastor Jim. Thanks for joining us for this week's message from Riverside Church. I believe you will be inspired and blessed by the Word of God. We'd love to welcome you to one of our services next time you're in the Brisbane area. If you'd like to know more about us, go online at www.riversidecc.org.au or like us on Facebook to hear about up-and-coming events. I hope you enjoy the message. God bless you. This morning, I want us to use our imaginations. Can we do that? Can we use, yes, use our imaginations, said the uh, childcare employee. I want you to use your imaginations. I want you to picture in your mind a scenario. I'm going to make it easy for you to start with. I want you to picture in your mind you sitting in church and me speaking to you. You should be, all be able to do that so far because that is what Jack we have. Okay? And you're sitting here and you're in church and I'm speaking to you. And all of a sudden, you hear a commotion beyond those doors. You hear muffled shouting. You hear people yelling, hear a scuffle, and all of a sudden those doors burst open and a crowd starts spilling into the room. And there's yelling and there's screaming. And at the front of the crowd, there is a bunch of religious zealots and they're dragging a half-naked woman who is trying to cling to a bedspread to cover herself up. And they burst into the church, and people are starting to fill up around them. They're coming down the aisle. They're, they're bumping into Paul and Laurie. They're running into their elbows. They're coming in from the sides, trying to get in front of you. And these people drag this woman all the way down in the front. Everyone has their phones out. They're live streaming to Facebook. You know, they're, they're filming the whole thing. And they come down the front, and they stand right here in front of Pastor Kim. And they look at me, and they say, this woman was caught cheating on her husband. The Bible says that we can kill her. The Word of God says that she should die. And with everyone looking, with everyone on their phones filming, and everyone's looking at me, they point to me and they say, what do you say? What do you say? Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that we can come into this place and openly worship you. Openly look at your word and that you would give us words of life. Words of life that would change us. Help us this morning to understand this story, to understand your word and to know what our answer should be when they say, what do you say? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This scenario is actually what happened to Jesus in John 8, verse 1. This is what actually happened to him. And this morning we're going to look at this famous event in the life and ministry of Jesus. But to understand what's happening and why it's happening, I'm going to break my sermon into two parts. I'm first going to explain what actually goes on and why it's going on. And then I'm going to explain and talk about what we can take out of this situation. Why does it matter to us? What can we do? How does it change our lives? In the light of the purpose of John's gospel, that is that we would continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that we would have life by the power of his name, what does that story teach us? So let us look now at John 8. And let's look at the actual event, not my modernized version of it. And it says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, remember that, as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. This woman was caught in act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. 
But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, now when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until there was only Jesus left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again. He said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. It is no exaggeration to say that this event is dramatic. It is confrontational. It is disruptive. It is humiliating. And the actions of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law seem overtly extreme. These are chaotic scenes. This is the temple court after the Feast of Tabernacles. There is a lot of people around. This is chaos. Why are they creating such a ruckus? What are they doing? Well, the answer to that question lies into the mindset of the Pharisees. Why are they doing what they're doing? And to understand that, we need to go back to chapter 5. Remember in chapter 5, and Pastor Jim talked about the man who was beside the pool of Bethesda. Remember that? And Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, they go after Jesus. They go after him. You can't heal on the Sabbath. That's against the law. And so they try and bring him down for breaking the law. But Jesus, oh no, he outmaneuvers them. He outdebates them. And they go away empty-handed. Then we fast forward to chapter 7. And people are starting to whisper, because Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts during the Feast of Tabernacles. People are starting to whisper, is this, is this the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? Jesus, this, 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 this could be him. And the Pharisees are getting worried because people are starting to talk about him being the actual Messiah. And so what they do in verse 32, we read that they actually sent the temple guard after Jesus to arrest him. Now last week, Pastor Jim talked about Jesus teaching on the promise of living water. And when he was teaching that, in that sermon that Jesus was teaching, the two guards were present. They were listening to the words of Jesus. Now in that crowd, there was a bit of division. Some believed, some didn't believe. But the temple guards went back to the Pharisees empty-handed. So, of course, the Pharisees went, "Ah, where's Jesus? We sent you to arrest him. What was their response? In verse 46, they said, we've never heard anyone speak like this. They were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And this is the temple guard. The Pharisees' response, they mocked them. Like you're so easily led astray. All those who believe in Jesus, they're just being led astray. They're being bamboozled by this Jesus fellow. But we, we the Pharisees, we'll stand true. We know what's going on. And they said this in verse 48, Is there a single one of us that believes in him? We have it right. They're all being led astray. And at this point, at the end of chapter 7, that Nicodemus makes a statement. He says this, he says, is it right to convict a man without a trial? This is Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, the elite. And he is questioning the actions of his fellow Pharisees. It is not a great defense of Jesus. Okay? Let's be honest. It's not like he's shouting from the rooftops that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's not an overt declaration of belief. But there are now obviously some seeds of dissension 
within the ranks of the Pharisee. So, the people are starting to believe, the temple guard are starting to believe, and now we have one of their own questioning their behavior. The Pharisees are starting to freak out a little bit. They're now getting worried. And so they, and the teachers of the law, also called the scribes, they're the ones who transcribed the law, they wrote down the law over and over again, so they know the law, and the Pharisees are the ones who claim to follow the law. They combine forces to bring down Jesus once and for all. They're going to put an end to this. And so what they need is a public spectacle. That's what they need. They need Jesus on show. Everyone watching so they can put Jesus into a lose-lose situation. And they can watch him fall. So then enter the woman caught in adultery. We have the scene. We have the screaming. She thinks she's going to die. They're dragging her through the streets of Jerusalem and people are joining the crowd. They're hurling abuse at her. It is chaos. There is a lot wrong with how this went down. They made sure it was as disruptive as possible. Jesus is teaching the people. It says that as he was speaking, so mid-sentence, they interrupt his lesson. Now, back in those days, rabbis, would, uh, they would sit and teach and everyone else would stand up. And so that, that's what they did. And I thought that would be a really cool idea. We could get rid of the chairs in the church altogether. I'll sit down and you guys can all stand up, never have to set up ever again. Everyone's laughing at me. It's like, that's not a good idea. No? Okay. I get it. That's cool. That's fine. That's fine. I'll continue doing this way. That's cool. Jesus is in the middle of his lesson and they blatantly interrupt him. They just barge in as if he's just hanging around. And they drag this woman before him, who they claim is caught in the act of adultery. And they parade her before everyone. Now at first glance, you could be mistaken for thinking that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, that their primary objective, that their concern, their passion, their desire is with upholding the law. Making sure that everyone in Jerusalem is obeying the law. That's their goal. That's, that's what they're doing here. They're just trying to uphold God's law. Make no mistake, it had nothing to do with the woman. They could not care less about what she was doing. Nope, it had nothing to do with her. Their only concern was trapping Jesus. That's all they cared about. The woman was nothing more than bait. She was a prop in this entire charade. There's a witch hunt masquerading as a pious pursuit for virtue. They didn't care about her sin, and we know this for two reasons. First of all, think of everyone who's there, as you imagined it. There's Jesus, teachers of the law, there's the Pharisees, there's the disciples, there's the crowd, and there's a woman caught in the act, caught in the act of adultery. Who's missing? Who's missing? The man. Where's the man that she was with? It takes two to tango, people. You can't commit adultery on your own. Where is the man? They drag this woman through half the streets of Jerusalem and there is not a sight of nor mention of the man she was with. They came to Jesus sprouting the law of Moses that they can stone her. These are the experts in the law and those who write the law over and over and over again. It's convenient that they forgot 
about Leviticus 20 verse 10, isn't it then? In the law it says that both those who commit adultery must be put to death. Both. Not one. Not the one you can find. Both. That is the law, which they conveniently overlook. If they were really concerned about upholding the law, then the man she was with would be there too. So it's not about her. It's about Jesus. And secondly, what are the chances of them stumbling across two people in the act of adultery? I mean, really. In all of Jerusalem, how did they find them? Did they knock on the door? Um, Is anyone committing adultery in here? It'd be really great if you could just send someone out because we need somebody right now. Like Anyone? No? Okay, we'll go to the next door. It's all good. How did they find them? How did they know where they were? Well, the obvious answer is is that the man is in on it, isn't it? That's why he's not there, because he's part of this charade. Now, either he was paid or pressured into seducing a woman. Remember, this is after the Festival of Tabernacles, eight days of partying, celebration. This is the last night. Maybe she had too much to drink. She maybe found herself in a, a situation she shouldn't have, and he seduces her, and then she's, bam, she's arrested. Or maybe, and I think this is probably more likely, Maybe these two already had a previous relationship. And someone in the Pharisee's circle knew about it and has known about it the whole time. And when they needed to, they pressured the man and he gave her up. Either way, she's committed adultery and she gets arrested. She gets taken to Jesus. Whatever went on, there is no doubt in my mind that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, orchestrated this entire ordeal. They are the architects of this commotion. So she's dragged before Jesus. And the question is asked, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? The law says she should be stoned. What about it, Jesus? So from the point of view of the Pharisees, they've got Jesus. They've got him. There's no way he's getting out of this one. They've cornered Jesus. In their mind, this is lose-lose for him. If he says set her free then he is publicly guilty of contradicting the law, of breaking the law of Moses in front of everybody. Furthermore, in Matthew 5.17, Jesus said that he came, he did not come to abolish the law of Moses. That's what he said. They're his words. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses. So to pardon her would not just be him breaking the law, it would be him breaking his own testimony, his own words. So he can't say, let her go. But if he says to stone her, then that goes against everything that Jesus stands for. His teachings of mercy, teaching of forgiveness. Remember Jesus taught Nicodemus back in chapter 3. He said that God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save it. So how can Jesus now cast judgment on her by saying stone her? So the Pharisees have put Jesus up against the law, up against his own words and ministry. But there's one more. At the time Jesus was born, the Roman government took away the Jews' power of capital punishment. The Jewish leaders were no longer able to execute people. They had to take him to a Roman judge, Roman governor, to do that. Remember, the Pharisees had to take him to see Pontius Pilate, didn't they? Because they couldn't crucify Jesus on their own. They didn't have the power. It was illegal. So they had to go to Pilate for him to okay, for him to say it. So if Jesus says, stone the woman... 
and they stone her and she dies, they can drop him into the Roman government and Jesus gets arrested. So now they've got him up against the law, up against his own ministry and up against the government. They got him walled in on three sides. The Pharisees must have been loving it. They must have been, they must have been oh, we've got Jesus now. There's no way he's getting out of this. There's no way in the world we've got him. They must have been so happy. But they forgot to wall someone in. You need four walls, not three. So now we come to the best bit. Jesus' response. What do you say, Jesus? What's he going to do? And Jesus' response is every bit as good as you expect. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. What does Jesus do? He stoops down and writes in the dust with his finger. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't answer their question. He just leans forward and writes in the dust. He doesn't even acknowledge really that they're there. He doesn't say anything. You can feel the tension in the air. The woman thinks she's going to die. The crowd is banging for blood. The Pharisees think they got Jesus over a barrel. It is tense. And all Jesus does is lean forward and stoops to draw in the dust. Everyone is watching. So what does Jesus write? We don't know. We have no idea what he writes. And to say that there are conflicting theories on what he writes is a massive understatement. I have read everything that I can. I have listened to everything that I can. A million different theories on what he wrote. One theory says that he was just doodling. He wasn't writing, he was just doodling in the sand, trying to gather his thoughts, trying to pause for effect. I don't think that's true. That's not true. Jesus knew what he was going to do. The most popular theory is this, and a lot of preachers preach from this standpoint. They say that he wrote their names in the dust. And next to their names, he wrote their sin. So they would walk away. That's the most popular theory. But I don't think that's true either. What I'm going to give you is my opinion. I want you to understand that it's my opinion. This is not fact, because there's no, we can't prove anything. This is just what I think from based on what I've read. So Jesus writes in the dust with his finger, and it says they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again to write in the dust. So he writes in the dust twice. And in between, he says the famous line. Before I explain what I believe, I want to keep in mind the purpose of John's gospel. Okay? John 20, 31. That we would continue to believe that he is the Messiah, yes? And that we would live, have life by the power of his name. So keep that in mind when I tell you what I think. Now, the reason that so many people believe that he wrote the names of the accusers and their sins is because of Jeremiah 17. In Jeremiah 17, it says, Lord, you are the hope of all Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. That's Jeremiah 13, 17, verse 13. Okay? Okay? So, remember last week, Pastor Jim spoke on that Jesus was teaching about, teaching about living water, yes? And so now we have this situation where Jesus is writing in the dust. It fits perfectly with Jeremiah 17, yes? It fits. I get it. It fits perfectly. 
He's in a confrontation with people who have forsaken Jesus. They don't believe that he's the Messiah. And so the name's written in the dust. I get it. It fits perfectly. I totally get it. What I don't get is Jesus publicly shaming the men. Because it makes him no better than them. I don't think that he would write their sins in the dust. Because Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. I can't see that happening. Because he's no better than the Pharisees and Israel. That's not my only reason. Oh no, it gets better. They said, after Christ the first time, they said they kept demanding an answer. Remember, they kept demanding an answer. If he was writing the names in the dust, wouldn't they say, why are you writing our names in the dust? Okay, wouldn't they address that? Wouldn't they reference at some point what he was doing if it was that? Their insistence for an answer speaks to me that whatever he was writing, they believed it was completely irrelevant to the situation. That what he was writing had nothing to do with what they were were doing. So what was he writing? I believe he was writing the Ten Commandments. That's what I believe. I believe he was writing out the Ten Commandments. I think the Pharisees thought that he was ignoring them and continuing on with his lesson, as if his lesson was about the Ten Commandments. Remember, he was teaching a crowd of people, and he was just writing the Ten Commandments out. He was just ignoring them. That's why they got so infuriated. So they kept demanding an answer. They were getting upset because Jesus is doing nothing. He's not responding to us. This whole thing is going on. There's people everywhere. There's yelling, there's screaming, there's shouting, and Jesus is writing in the sand. But it wasn't relevant. I know, because Jesus is way cleverer than we are. He wasn't ignoring them either, but he was still teaching. But now he was teaching them. He was teaching the accusers. Think about this. They came to Jesus sprouting the law of Moses. So what does he do? He writes the law of Moses as it was given to him. So they can see what it was. I want you to come with me to Exodus 31, 18. I want you to read this. This is where it gets good, people, okay? This is where it gets good. It says, When the Lord had finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the stone turn tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, written by the finger of God. The stone tablets are inscribed with the very finger of God. Jesus is writing in the dust with his finger. The finger of God is now writing the Ten Commandments again. Thousands of years later, after he did it the first time. This is God standing, sitting before them, writing out the Ten Commandments with the same finger he used thousands of years ago to inscribe the tablets. I get goosebumps when I think about that. That is incredible. How smart is Jesus? The one who gave them the law, which they are now trying to use to trap him, is sitting in front of them. And they do not see him. They do not see God. Jesus writes out the Ten Commandments, which would have taken some time, which is why they get so frustrated. They kept demanding an answer. And then he stands up and gives the famous line, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he sits back down and keeps writing. The second time, I think, he underlines or he circles one of the commandments. Thou shalt not commit murder. And next to that, I will concede that maybe he started writing the names of those there. But I think he started with two names in particular. So he circles, Thou shalt commit murder, and he starts writing names. 
Now, under Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 7, 17, verse 7, it says this, Witnesses must be the first ones to throw the stone. If you're going to accuse someone of somebody, if you're the witness, it has to be at least two witnesses, can't be one, has to be at least two witnesses, they are the ones who have to throw the first stone. That is the law. Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7. They must throw the stone first. And so what does he do? Dad now shall commit murder, and he writes those two witnesses' names next to them. So they can see their names written in the dust next to, Thou shalt not commit murder. Talk about pressure. I wouldn't want to be those two men. I can assure you of that. Jesus calls their bluff. He calls their bluff. What does he mean? What do I mean by that? In order to charge the woman with adultery, there had to be two witnesses. So the Pharisees had to find two people to catch her in the act. Okay, they didn't know where she was going to be there. They told them where to go. So this is a whole setup, remember? You two go get her, and you can be the witnesses. You can testify, and we can get him. Okay, I got it. Yep, okay. I don't doubt I wasn't one of them, because the Pharisees wouldn't get their hands dirty. They would have got some underlings to do that. Okay? But now Jesus has called them out. He's written the names in the dust next to the law of God. Don't commit murder. If you're the witness, you've got to throw the first stone. Jesus has completely reversed the situation on those who came to him. But let's be honest, people. Let's be honest. No one was going to be throwing stones that day. Let's be realistic. Unless Jesus threw a stone first, none of them are going to throw a stone. Why? Because none of them are going to get arrested by the Roman government, are they? Because they can't dish out capital punishment. The Pharisees were never going to stone her. She didn't know that. She thought she was going to die. But they knew that, and Jesus knew that. They were never going to stone her, because they're not stupid. If they stone her in front of thousands of people, they get arrested by the Roman government. Jesus calls their bluff. He calls them out, and all of a sudden, the Pharisees are like, we're done. We are done. On top of the threat of the Romans, Jesus had given them the ultimate test. Standing before the written word of God, who was going to claim that they had never sinned? Honestly. Which one of them was going to step forward and go, yep, that's me? Not one of them qualified. And one by one, they dropped their stones and walked away. Beginning with the oldest, because they were the wisest, and they knew they were beat. They knew this was over. So until there was only the woman and Jesus left before the crowd. They were standing together in the middle of these lookers-on. And for the first time, Jesus actually addresses the woman. For the first time in the whole ordeal, he acknowledges that she's even there. He stands up again, didn't even look at them as they walked away. And he says, didn't even one of them condemn you? She goes, no, Lord, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And his lesson comes to an end. It's such a powerful story. Jesus reveals himself as God again so that we will believe that he's the Messiah. Evidence. But what do we take away from the story? What does it mean to us here today, sitting in a building in Chelmer? What does it mean to us? 
What does it mean for you and me that Jesus did what he did? There is so much we learn about Jesus out of this crazy scene. And so much Jesus reveals to us about who God is. But quickly, and to finish up, I just want to give you three things this morning. Three things we learn about God. Three things that I hope will help you understand the significance of having Jesus in your life. Firstly, Jesus does not condemn. Jesus does not condemn. Jesus stands in stark contrast to everyone else involved in this event. From the Pharisees to the teachers of the law to the crowd chasing the drama, they are out to condemn her. They are out to bring her down. She has been put on show for her sin. There's no question of her guilt. And now they want to see her pay the price. They want to see Jesus condemn her like they have. She may be a prop in their pretense to trap Jesus, but they still want their pound of flesh. What I love about the New Living Translation is that when Jesus delivers his famous line, it's different how you remember it. Growing up, you would have heard, uh, he who is out sin cast the first stone. That's what you think of when you think of this. He who is out sin cast the first stone. But in this version it says, the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. One who has never sinned. And that's much closer to the original language. Because the Greek says, is the one who has never sinned. When you think about it in terms of never sinned, it seems a little more drastic, doesn't it? A little more challenging for us. Now, the last time I checked, there was only one person standing in the temple courts who qualified under those conditions. There was not one person besides Jesus in the presence of that woman who could claim to have never sinned. When Jesus rises up and declares what the qualifications are, to stone her, he disqualified everyone. Everyone. No one meets the requirements. The only one who does is Jesus. The only one who can judge and condemn her is Jesus. And he doesn't. He doesn't. The only one qualified to condemn chooses not to. He chooses not to. Because Jesus did not come to condemn the world. But instead, he came to save it. It's easy for people to think of God as the harsh judge. Think of your life before you knew Jesus, before you knew God. Did you think of him as the, the mighty smiter, smiting people who disobey, who don't meet his standard? Thunderbolts of lightning for those who don't measure up. But that is not who we see in Jesus. Jesus shows us time and time again a God who reaches into the lives of people to lift them up. Think of the leper in Matthew 8, when no one else would go near him. Jesus goes and heals him and touches him. His willingness. Remember, Jesus choosing to eat with Zacchaeus, tax collector, a sinner. He eats at his house. He reaches into the life of Zacchaeus and changes it. Think of the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. He extends her salvation. A non-Jew, Samaritan. These are examples of our God lifting people up. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. He has raised us up out of death. God raises. He does not push down. He cares. He does not condemn. Remember, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Don't let others condemn you 
by their words, by their actions. We can all relate to this. We've all been criticised. We've all found someone else's disapproval. We've all been told we're not good enough at some point. When someone comes to condemn you, to criticise you, to disapprove of you, what do you say? What do you say? Do you accept their disapproval? Or do you say, there is no condemnation for me because I belong to Jesus. There is no condemnation for me because I belong to Jesus. It doesn't matter what you say because I say I belong to Jesus. What do you say? Secondly, Jesus does not compromise. He doesn't condemn, but he doesn't compromise. After everyone's gone, the accusers have crept away. Jesus declares, too, that he does not condemn her. An amazing example of mercy and grace. But that's not the end of the conversation. He has one final thing to say to her before she's allowed to go. He says, go and sin no more. And without that final word, you could argue that Jesus is soft on sin, that her actions didn't matter, that she gets off scot-free with no recourse. Okay, I don't condemn you either. Off you go. It's fine. It doesn't matter what you did. Off you go. That's not what he does. He says, go and sin no more. It's easy to forget in this scenario with the despicable actions of the Pharisees dragging this woman through Jerusalem. It's easy to forget that she's guilty. That she did commit adultery. They caught her. She's guilty. And sin has a consequence. God cannot just brush past sin and forget it didn't happen. Sin has a consequence. She thought she was going to die. She thought, this is it. I'm going to be humiliated in front of thousands of people and then they're going to kill me. And then from nowhere, a saviour arises. A man whom she did not know makes all her accusers disappear. And when it's just he and her left, he says, I don't condemn you either. She is free from the consequences of her actions because Jesus takes the consequence. Jesus will go to the cross. Jesus will go to the cross for her sin. Just like he went to the cross for all of our sin. God cannot compromise with sin. There has to be payment made. There has to be a consequence. And Jesus takes the consequence. In response, what does she call him? She calls him Lord. Some versions say she says, no, sir. That's not what the word meant. The word is karios, which means master or Lord. She says, Lord. She recognizes what he has done for her. She recognizes that she owes her very life to him. Jesus shows mercy, but mercy should motivate change. Jesus shows us mercy, but his mercy should motivate change in us. In response to the mercy she recognizes, Jesus goes one step further. And he challenges her to sin no more. This phrase is not an indication to stop just committing adultery. Go and stop doing the one thing they were caught you for. That's not what he's saying. He's saying go and sin no more. Go and leave your life of sin. Turn your life around. In the face of such merciful grace, there must be reciprocating behavior. There must be a response. 
to strive to live a life worthy of the grace that you have received. Maybe we're not all adulterers who have been dragged through the streets of Graceful and Choma. I'm sure that doesn't apply to anybody here, actually. But we are all sinners. Every single one of us. God's word is clear on that. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And God cannot compromise on sin. So what does God do? He sends Jesus. Jesus deals with our sin on our behalf. He who had never sinned becomes our sin. That is God's mercy. To send his son in our place. That's grace. And what is our response? Do we say, thanks Jesus, that doesn't really matter. I don't really believe. Is that our response? It doesn't really matter. Or do we respond like the woman? Do we recognize that he is our Lord? What is he asking us? To leave our life of sin and follow him. That is what he's asking. Only in Jesus, only by choosing to follow him, have faith in him, are we saved. He is the only way because he was the answer for the sin problem because God couldn't compromise. It is only in Jesus that we can truly live. Will you follow Jesus? What do you say? What do you say? And lastly, Jesus shows compassion. Jesus doesn't condemn, but nor can he compromise. But the most powerful thing we see in this encounter is God's compassion. Jesus reveals God's compassion. God knows our greatest struggles. God knows our burdens. He knows your worries. He knows your anxieties. He knows the words that people have spoken over you, that you hold on to. He knows the lies that you believe about yourself. He knows all of it. And in his compassion, he gives us a solution. 1 Peter 5.7 tells us to give our worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. God cares about you. Even when you don't think that's true, he still cares about you. Even if you don't feel it, God cares about you. This encounter in John 8 shows us how much he cares. It reveals God to us. The whole crowd is watching. They're watching a woman who is half naked, clinging to whatever she could find to cover up her nakedness. They're dragging her through the streets. People have their eyes fixed upon her. And they draw her into the temple crowd, the temple courts, and everyone is looking. Every eye is on her, except for two. There's only one person not looking at the woman, and that is Jesus. He's looking down, writing in the dust. He doesn't make eye contact with her. He doesn't look upon her shame, like everybody else is doing. He refuses to buy into the commotion. He refuses to engage with her accusers with this disturbance. That's what compassion looks like. Going against the crowd. Not joining in with the mob just because everyone else is doing it. He shows care and consideration. Because and they're looking at her and they ask Jesus the question and he starts writing, where does every eye go? To Jesus. He takes their eyes off her by writing in the dust so that she 
is less vulnerable. He has the presence of mind because he is compassionate, because he cares. He shows her respect and draws the attention of every single person upon himself. At the same time, he's not even looking at her. That's what compassion looks like. Going against the crowd. Jesus covers her shame. Jesus covers her shame by drawing the attention of everybody in that place. So she's no longer being stared at like a piece of meat. He is the only one who shows compassion. He is the only one who doesn't shame her by looking at her in her vulnerability. That is the God that loves you. That is the God that loves you. He shows us compassion when we are most vulnerable. He is the one that you can trust when it seems as if you have nobody else. That woman will have never felt more alone in her life when everyone was staring at her. And the only one who understood was the one who didn't even acknowledge her until she was safe from harm. What is powerful is that Jesus dealt with the problem before he dealt with the person. He dealt with the situation before he dealt with her. He solved the problem. He made sure that she was safe, that she was safe from harm, and that she felt safe, that she knew that it was over. He dealt with the problem, and then he dealt with the person. He defends her from her accusers. And God in his compassion does the same for us. God defends us. We have an accuser. The enemy comes to make accusation against us. The enemy will come and he will tell you, God doesn't love you. Not really. How could God love you? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe people at church care about you? Is that what you think? You don't belong there. God doesn't really love you. The enemy brings accusation. He brings criticism. He brings disapproval. So you believe lies about yourself. And then you're reminded of the words of others. People who, all your life, who have said things to bring you down. You'll never achieve that. I never really loved you in the first place. No one really cares about you. We never amount to anything. There are so many examples that you could give me of things that people have said to you throughout your life. And the enemy brings them to you to drag you down, to accuse you, to separate you from God's love. But he can't. He can't. In Revelation chapter 10, uh, chapter 10 verse 10, it says, chapter 12, 12, it says this. The enemy brings accusations against us, but in Christ Jesus, salvation and power have come at last. In Christ Jesus, salvation and power have come at last. The enemy has been thrown down, and salvation and power have come at last. Do you listen to the lies of the enemy that blind you to the truth? Do you listen to the words in your mind from your past that blind you to what God says about you? Or do you see? Do you understand? Do you perceive that you are free in Jesus? You are free from the words that have been spoken over you. You are free from the lies 
that you've believed about yourself. What do you say? I say salvation and power have come at last. That our accuser has been thrown down and been defeated. But what do you say? What do you say? I'm going to invite the musicians to come as we finish up. This encounter is a perfect example of who our God is. That he does not condemn us even though he can. He chooses not to. That he can't be compromised on sin. There can be no compromise with sin. And so Jesus is sent to deal with the sin problem. And we know that he is compassionate. He has created a way for us to have a relationship with him again. Calling us into his family. Setting us free from the shame and accusations that we have lived with for so long. So we can live a life according to the power of his name. And in the name of Jesus, we have the power to overcome. In the name of Jesus, we have the power to overcome. And the power to live a life worthy of his mercy and grace. I want you to stand this morning, please, if you would. At home too, if you want to stand, feel free. And this morning, we're going to make a declaration. We're going to make a declaration this morning about who Jesus is, about who God is to us. I want you to leave from this place putting aside everything that would hold you down because we know that Jesus is compassionate. We know that Jesus does not condemn us. We know that Jesus came to deal with sin. Firstly, I want to speak to those who maybe haven't accepted Jesus into their life. Watching at home, if that is you, this morning I've talked about how Jesus is the answer to the sin problem. Jesus is the answer. God couldn't compromise. There had to be a solution. And so Jesus came to die for everybody here. Jesus came to die for you. And he has set everybody free who believes in him. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus at home, I ask you that your contact would reach out to us and go, that's me. All you need to do is believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that he died for your sins and ask him to be Lord of your life. That's all you need to do. It's as simple as that. It's not complicated. God is reaching into your life. He wants to raise you up through his son Jesus. Now for the rest of us who know Jesus, we're going to make a declaration this morning. We're going to believe. We make the declaration. I want you to believe the declaration. I want you to believe it in your heart that it's true. I want you to repeat after me. I want everyone here to repeat after me. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Salvation and power have come. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that salvation and power have come through Jesus? And because of that, 
There is no longer any condemnation for any of us because we belong to Jesus. doesn't matter what people say about you, what you believed about yourself. You need to let it go because salvation and power have come. When we leave this place, I want you to be free of your burden because God made a way where there was no way. Excellent. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we declare to you this morning that we are free from condemnation. We praise you in your holy name. We praise the name of Jesus. For in the name of Jesus, we have life. We have life and life in abundance. I pray for every single person here that as they made that declaration, that they would believe it. That they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is true. That there is no condemnation for any of them who belong in Jesus. No condemnation. Because you are a God that does not condemn. And you are a God who is compassionate. So let us move forward from this place, knowing that Jesus is the Son of God and believing that we are free to live in the power of the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening today. I hope you subscribe to the podcast so you can be inspired weekly. God bless and have a great day.